I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, we're moving forward in our study of the uh, book of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, today we enter the very last chapter of the book. Uh, this has been about a, now a year-long study. Uh, my plan is to uh, conclude the study the end of this month. So uh, after today, there should only be uh, two more messages, and, uh, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, but you'll notice the title of today's message is How to Offer Acceptable Worship uh, to God. And our focal point will be the first six verses, and you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles, but all of these verses are also printed in your sermon notes as well. So uh, look there at your sermon notes at the uh, introduction. The bridge, and I think this is very important for us to see, the bridge that connects Hebrews 13 to the preceding section, which was those last verses in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, the, the bridge is Hebrews 12, 28. And notice there in your notes, Therefore, let us be grateful. Therefore, let us be grateful. Why? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, in the context of Hebrews 12, acceptable worship is to be grateful. To be grateful for all the present blessings that have been bestowed on the believer through Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, which is the emphasis of verses 22 and through 24 of chapter 12, and for all the future blessings that await us living in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what Hebrews 13 does is simply describe how to express gratefulness to God in acceptable worship. That is the fundamental theme of Hebrews 13. You take that verse, Hebrews 12, 28, about uh, offering gratefulness to God in acceptable worship, and Hebrews 13 tells us how to do that, expresses how we demonstrate uh, worship uh, to God. And you'll notice just the structure of the first six verses. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6 there in your sermon notes again contains four pairs of admonitions and a motivation for each pair. And so, uh, and then I'll add a cross-reference uh, for each pair of admonitions just for uh, emphasis. So look with me uh, at the first pair of admonitions, uh, which can be summed up by the statement in the first point in your notes, receive one another in brotherly love. In other words, the writer is saying, you want to worship God? You want to express gratefulness to God in awe and reverence within love the brethren. Receive one another in brotherly love. And the first admonition is let love of the brethren, notice, continue. Let love of the brethren continue. Now the Greek word translated love in verse 1 is not the usual word agape, which is used to describe a God-like love. It's actually the word Philadelphia, which refers to a brotherly love. The word implies that the church is a family that we belong to, a place where we should feel warmth and heartfelt affection toward one another. Uh, the heart of the word literally means to deeply cherish one another and to be deeply devoted to one another. In other words, Christianity is not just about believing truth about Jesus Christ. It is that 
And without that, Christianity would be nothing. I mean, it rests on the objective truth of God's Word. But it's more than just believing that truth. It's also about belonging to a family where we love one another. And love for one another demonstrates the authenticity of our relationship with Christ. It demonstrates the authenticity of our worship. Uh, to come to corporate worship and to sing these songs of praise and adoration to God and then to leave this place and not love one another would be pure hypocrisy. Of course, John 13, 35, you all know that. Jesus said, what, you, they will know you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. Again, we demonstrate the authenticity of our creation, Christianity as we relate properly in harmony and unity within the body of Christ. You're all familiar with John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, do you know 1 John 3, 16? That reads, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And then you would think the writer would say, well, he laid down his life for us, therefore we should, what, lay down our lives for him. But that's not what the verse says. It says, he laid down his life for us, and now we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus saying, this is how you practically demonstrate your love for me. This is how you demonstrate awe and reverence and worship for me, by loving one another within the context of that church family. I love 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It reads, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently, I love that word, fervently love one another from the heart. That's God's command to you and I. And that is at the heart of true worship, to fervently love one another from the heart. Now, can I just pause right here and on this point just affirm this church family? I am so appreciative of seeing God's grace at work here teaching you to love one another. Uh, I've been here for uh, 38 years uh, now, this month, 38 years, and, uh, and this truly is a loving church family. And I say that boasting in God's grace at work in you, and it's seen in so many different ways. You know, I think of Linwood and uh, Spires and his crew uh, related to benevolence. Uh, uh, Gene Royer and the wonderful ladies and few men that uh, are in that uh, bereavement team that reaches out to people in grief. Uh, I think of all the ladies that help provide meals for these uh, women that have babies. You know, I mentioned to you uh, some months ago that before we get through the month of September, we would have had uh, 16 new babies born uh, here at Edgewood. And since I made that announcement, I think about 10 more women are expecting. <laughs> so uh, we are definitely uh, uh, seeing a boom of babies. We had the Downies. That, uh, uh, that's my sister's uh, son, uh, Chad, and, of course, his wife, Natalie, uh, they gave birth to their twins this uh, past week. She told me to mention they're the prettiest twins that ever have been born. And, uh, and uh, there is some truth to that. I'll be honest. I've never thought newborns are especially pretty. I don't, don't, you know, my wife always gets upset when I say that. I'm just being honest. But these are really pretty babies. They're, they're beautiful, beautiful uh, babies. 
Uh, but, and, you know, I think of our Meals on Wheels, the folks that come uh, day in, day out to deliver meals to uh, elderly and shut in. Uh, but it's not just, and, and, and forgive me, there's no way I can remember everyone and everything. I would never have time to do that this morning. I'm just citing some of those examples. But that's not the thing that so uh, impresses me about this church family. It's all the things that happen just spontaneously, uh, just not planned, that just come from your heart. Uh, you're such a caring church family. You are a very warm, affectionate uh, church family, and I commend you for that. So my admonition uh, would simply be this, and it's found in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. This would be my admonition to the Edgewood family. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need of anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it. Notice, I love that word, practice. We're talking about love is something to be practiced. It's something to be expressed toward all the brethren. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So as your pastor, I'm saying thank you. I'm affirming uh, seeing the reality of Jesus Christ uh, in your relating to one another, in your caring for one another, in your being tender and sensitive towards one another, but uh, let's not rest on past laurels. Let's what? Excel still more. Let's continue to grow uh, because we can never claim that, you know, we've uh, reached the zenith, which, of course, would be pure Christ-likeness. Uh, the second admonition in that first pair, the first one, again, let love of the brethren continue. The second admonition is do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Be hostile to one another without complaint. Uh, Romans 12.13 says, Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And it's very important for you to understand the historical context in which the uh, writer of Hebrews was uh, addressing this issue. Uh, back in this day, uh, when uh, preachers and evangelists would travel, uh, you know, these were not wealthy individuals, and there, there were not uh, uh, many motels and hotel chains back in that day, although there were inns that they could take advantage of. Uh, but they were totally dependent upon the generosity and the kindness of that uh, church community in that locale. Uh, this was, would be true of Paul, Peter, all the other disciples, and the evangelists that would travel about. And not only that... Because this was a time where the church was incurring great persecution, many believers would be drawn, drawn, uh, driven away from their homes. So we've seen that in our study of the book of Hebrews where they lost their property, they lost their possessions, they were literally plundered and uh, exiled, uh, becoming as immigrants. And, uh, and so the Christian community was called upon uh, to show hospitality uh, to these persecuted believers, uh, to these uh, preachers and disciples and others that would travel about uh, teaching and, and sharing. And, of course, uh, the uh, application to you and I is uh, we need to show hospitality. We need to open our homes uh, to one another. That's one of the beauties of our small group home fellowships that we do the second Sunday of every month. You know, I'm very thankful uh, that we have facilities like this where we can come together uh, and, and corporately worship. Uh, but I do not believe God ever intended us to neglect the home being a central place of teaching and worship. So, yes, thank God for this, 
but we don't want to neglect the small groups and meeting together in those homes where we can develop close relationships with one another for encouragement and show one another uh, accountability. Now, those are the first two pairs. We're to uh, receive one another in brotherly love, let uh, brotherly love continue, show hospitality to the saints. Well, what's the motivation? What's the motivation? Well, the motivation, he says, is for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Uh, this probably is an illusion uh, by the writer to Genesis 18 and 19. Remember, these are Hebrew believers. And if you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, there were three angels that uh, came in the appearance of men uh, to Abraham and Sarah, and then also after their visit with Abraham and Sarah to Lot. And, uh, and they uh, both received them and uh, provided for them. And I think the, the point in the story is, as a result, they both were wonderfully blessed. It was in that visit with Abraham that uh, the promise was renewed, that uh, Sarah would give, miraculously give birth to Isaac. And then as they went on to Lot, it was those angels that spared Lot from the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah as uh, he was delivered uh, from that. So I believe the point God, God is making is show brotherly love one another. Show hospitality uh, because this demonstrates authentic worship. And you do never know that you may be entertaining an angel, but the most important thing, to be blessed. God will bless you for doing this. And then look at the cross-reference. It's a great cross-reference. It sort of sums it all up. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Notice, give preference to one another in honor. And another good cross-reference. What does it mean to give preference to one another in honor? Philippians chapter 2. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but what? With humility, with lowliness of mind. You're to regard one another more important than yourself. Do not look out to your own interest, but look to the interest of the others, those sitting around you. And let this attitude, let this mind control you, this thinking process that was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed equal with God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to what? To grasp, selfishly grasp, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a man and being made in appearance as a man. He what? He humbled himself, becoming the bondservant of all, humbling himself to that point of death, even death on a cross. But then don't miss the next verse. Wherefore, as a result of his humility, as a result of his loving, therefore what? God what? Highly exalted him. And see, there is the whole cycle. As you humble yourself, as you put the needs of others, the interests of others before your own, and as you invest, God says, I promise to bless you. I'll uniquely bless you for doing so. Look at the second way we are to express acceptable worship to God, not only by receiving uh, one another uh, in love, but also we're to remember the persecuted. We're to remember the persecuted in verse Three. Notice the, the two admonitions. Remember, uh, each of these points has a pair of admonitions. Uh, and those are, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And you also remember those who are ill-treated. 
So it's a clear reference to those who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And notice the motivation. What's the motivation? Since you yourselves also are in the body. In other words, his point is, you're one with one another. You're, you're linked to one another. Uh, look, at, look at that great cross-reference, which expresses this very thought about just how connected we are. And when one person hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. It says, but now there are many members. Right here. You're seeing it. But what? One body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, one body, many members, because we have different functions within the body. uh, According to the gifts that God has given us. And the reason is that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Again, we're back to that showing love to one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individual members of it. And you might want to jot down just on the, on the side, Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses uh, 32 through 46. Uh, it really sort of is a good summary of, of this point about remembering the persecuted and also showing love to the brethren. Remember, that's the, uh, when God, uh, Jesus returns and he judges the nations to determine who's, who had authentically been walking with him. And that's when he uh, turns to the sheep, his true followers, and he said, hey, he said, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in jail, you visited me. And they said, Lord, wait a minute. When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you in jail? And then he said, what? As much as you've done it until what? The least of these, my brethren. As you've expressed this to your brothers and sisters in the family of God, you were doing it to me. And he uses that as his standard to determine the authenticity of their Christianity. And it's not. That is, by those works we earn salvation. All Jesus is saying is, if a person truly is converted and he comes to know Christ, there's going to be a change in his life. And one of the most primary changes you're going to see is how he begins to relate to one another. If he's been touched by the love of God, if he's known God's mercy, he's going to extend that love and mercy to others. And remember, he turns to the goats and he said, hey, you did not give me food. You did not give me drink. You did not visit me. And then, you know, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, when did we not do all those things? And he said, well, when you did not show that love and care uh, to my brethren, uh, to those that uh, are identified uh, with me. So uh, it's very, very important for us to remember the persecution. As a matter of fact, the uh, first Sunday in November, our focus will be on the persecuted church around uh, the world. And that will be a unique emphasis that particular morning in the life of our church But this should be a focus continually. Look at the third way to show acceptable worship. Third way, and that is to respect marriage. And again, I think you can see how practical he's getting on uh, what real worship is. To respect marriage in verse 4. And notice the, the, the two admonitions. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And then he says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So those are the two a uh, pair of admonitions. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage, as you know, is defined in the Bible 
is what God intended to be a permanent and irrevocable covenant agreement and sexual union between a man and a woman as husband and wife with the purpose of displaying Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. That word honor, you might want to circle that word honor. The, the better translation for that word would be precious. In other words, he's saying, let marriage be held as precious among all of you. Let marriage be treasured is what he's saying. Let it be revered. Let it be respected. Let it be esteemed. Let it be valued. In other words, when you think of marriage, let your emotions be gripped by tremendous respect and sanctity. uh, Because marriage is a God-ordained institution to be held in the highest regard. And in light of that, the marriage bed is not to be uh, uh, defiled. And what does the word undefiled mean? It means free of all contamination. So how do we defile or contaminate marriage? Well, the latter part of verse 4 tells us. Fornication and adultery. Fornication and adultery. Now, adultery, of course, is a very specific term that refers to extramarital relations. Uh, Fornication is a more general term that includes all forms of sexual impurity and immorality. But at the root of both fornication and adultery is the same evil. Having sexual relations with someone who is not your lawful marriage partner. That's the common denominator in both. It is called adultery if you're married. It's called fornication if you're not married. Both dishonor marriage and defile the marriage bed because God made marriage and marriage alone as the only holy and safe and ultimately joyful place for sexual relationships. Now, what is the motivation to honor marriage and stay free from all fornication and adultery? Notice, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Powerful statement. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, not in your sermon notes, but it reads, flee immorality, flee it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. See, sexual sin involves the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, and it affects the whole person. The memory becomes permanently etched with the experience. The conscience becomes scarred, and the spirit becomes polluted. And this is exactly what David was saying in Psalm 32 after his uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fervor, uh, uh, fever heat of summer. And then look at the cross reference from Proverbs chapter 6, 32 and 33. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. But not only will individuals be judged for violating God's standard of marriage, but also nations. And I thought this would be appropriate at this point. Uh, You know, right after the uh, Supreme Court issued its decision on same-sex marriage, uh, I provided uh, what I believed was a good biblical response to that. 
And I don't want to repeat all of that this morning, but I, I, wanted, I do want to reiterate uh, the main points that I made. Uh, not all of you were here that Sunday morning, and even for those of you that were here, I, I think now that we've had a little time since the decision, it's just important to reinforce these truths. So let me just remind you of what I shared uh, a couple, three months ago right after that decision, and, uh, and I trust that we will, as a church family, stand true to this. And, and the first point, that I made basically four points uh, on that particular Sunday, and the first was the Supreme Court decision redefining marriage to include same-sex marriage does not change God's definition of marriage as a union between a man and a woman. Now, uh, this morning I won't take the time to go through all the verses that I did a couple months ago, uh, but uh, there are many verses, of course, throughout the Scripture that clearly indicates that God's definition of marriage is between a man and a woman and a man and woman only. So although the, the Supreme Court is to be respected as the highest court in the land, it does not stand above, above the divine court of God. And it does not possess the authority to redefine God's law as defined in God's Word. Marriage was, is, and always will be the union between one man and one woman as ordained by God from the very creation of the human race. Therefore, from a Christian perspective, this is the way we need to look at that decision. It literally has no validity before God, before the divine court of God. And it is not to be accepted by the Christian community, period. It's not to be accepted. We are committed to remain faithful to the laws of the one true judge, and that is God, to whom all men will give an account. Amen? So that was the first point. The second point is the fact that the Supreme Court decision refined marriage to include same-sex marriage now normalizes and institutionalizes homosexual behavior in the life of our nation by declaring it a right found in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, that's what the those five justices did in this particular decision. But God's word pronounces judgment on any nation which redefines evil as good, which defines darkness as light or bitter as sweet. Um, when any nation approves what God condemns, that nation stands under God's wrath. And Romans 1 makes that very, very clear. When we spurn God's law, when we spurn God's authority, then we will rush into God's judgment. So what should be the Christian response to this uh, reality that we stand as a nation under the judgment of God? We are not to lash out in anger over the collapse of our culture, but we are to weep. We're to weep over those broken by the collapse and engage in the two God-given graces that can rescue people from sin and God's judgment. And what are those two God-given graces? Prayer. Prayer. We're to evoke God's mercy on our nation, God's mercy on individuals. I think of the prayer in Habakkuk. In wrath, what? Remember mercy, Lord. And then the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and to salvation to everyone who believes. So that should be our response. The third truth that I shared was the Supreme Court decision redefining marriage to include same-sex marriage will be used, will be used, and we're already seeing it happen, as a weapon to attack the religious liberties of those whose convictions prevent them from officiating at, participating in, 
or celebrating homosexual unions. Uh, we've already witnessed uh, wedding vendors, uh, military chaplains, uh, uh, the uh, court clerk in Kentucky, and others come under attack. And we can expect, we should expect, these attacks to uh, escalate uh, toward the Christian community. The liberty the church has enjoyed in America is changing. And we need to recognize that. The liberty we have enjoyed for many, many years is changing. And the new normal may include persecution. And it's my conviction that that persecution will intensify, that it will increase. And we need to recognize as that happens, and it's happening now, God never has promised the church religious liberty. He's never promised the church religious liberty. And history has proven during times of persecution, the church has known its greatest spiritual purity and it's also known its greatest numerical growth in conversion and in salvations. Our position must always be no compromise. No compromise, regardless of the consequences, to speak the truth in love, and that's very, very important, and if necessary, to practice peaceful civil disobedience if compelled to do what God's Word condemns. Uh, the truth that we must live is First uh, Peter 3, where it says, Sanctify Christ in your heart, and then be ready to give an answer to any man who asks you. And the example we must follow is found in First Peter 2, the example of Jesus, who although he, was, he suffered, although he was threatened, although he was reviled, he did not respond in like manner. He did not return evil for evil, but he returned good for evil, demonstrating the love of God. And then the last point I made is uh, the Supreme Court decision re redefining marriage uh, must not distract God's people from our primary mission. And this was the most important thing I wanted to communicate in that message and the thing I'd want to communicate this morning. Marriage, listen to me very, very carefully now, marriage is not the ultimate battleground. Our enemies are not homosexuals, and politics will not provide the ultimate solution. Reality is our nation will never rise above the morality of its citizens and the majority of Americans do not know Jesus Christ or adhere to a biblical worldview. Our battle is not with flesh and blood but with spiritual powers of darkness who have blinded the minds of the unbelieving from seeing the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our mission remains the same, to share the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost. Homosexuals, like all other sinners, need to be warned of impending eternal judgment and lovingly offered forgiveness, grace, and new life through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul acknowledges, hey, some of you... You were fornicators. You were adulterers. You were homosexuals. But he says, but now you have been what? You've been justified. You've been cleansed. You've been washed. You've been changed. And the power of God, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So my, my conclusion is simply the church must not retreat in fear and discouragement, but boldly take the initiative to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our culture the way that Jesus shared it with his culture. What? Full of grace and truth. Amen? Amen. And that 
is what God wants us to do. As we sang earlier, stand up, stand up, what? For Jesus. Again, not a time for us to retreat. Uh, look at that last point, and then I'll close. Another way we express authentic worship is, by, is rest in God. Rest in God. Uh, verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. Look at the two admonitions. Let your character be free from the love of money. And then the second admonition is being content with what you have. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And notice the motivation. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say what? The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? In other words, he's saying we're to be free from the love of money. Why? Because God is our helper. That's why we can be content. We don't look for our security in money. But we put our trust in God. And as I put my trust in God, I know that He will not desert me, that He will not forsake me, that He will be my helper. And I love that phrase when He says, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? I think what He's communicating there, as we've seen already earlier in the book of Hebrews, no matter what any individual, like we were just talking about persecution intensifying. So take that as an example. Let's say persecution does come. Regardless of what comes, no person can separate me from God's love. I'm secure in that love. Number two, that person can't do anything to me that God does not design for my peace and holiness. We saw that in Hebrews 12. Amen? God ultimately is in control. He won't allow anything to touch my life unless He knows it's ultimately for my good, to teach me greater depths of His peace, greater depths of His holiness. And then there's, no, there's nothing anyone can do to me that can rob me of my eternal joy in Jesus Christ, which is secure. I'm part of that unshakable kingdom. So again, a marvelous lesson. Look at the cross-reference there. Uh, this is from the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 4. I have learned to be content. Notice it's a learning process. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Prosperity often is a greater test of our Christianity than when we find ourselves uh, in a very difficult time. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And notice, we often quote verse 13, but we yank it right out of its context. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is put in that context of being content in whatever circumstances I am. Not that God always changes the circumstances, but He gives me the strength to bear up, to persevere, and to learn the character lessons that He has for me and to draw me closer to Him. So again, just a very uh, simple but very practical study on what authentic worship is. And he's saying if you want to demonstrate your love for God, if you want to demonstrate your reverence and awe for God, then love the brethren. Receive one another as Christ received you. Love one another. Demonstrate a unity in the midst of your diversity. Demonstrate a love greater than your differences. And through that love, demonstrate to a lost world the reality of your Christianity. Show, be hospitable to one another. Uh, open your home. Open your goods. Open your possessions. Open your life. Sometimes what a person needs is just a listening ear. 
uh, but be sensitive, be tender to, towards one another. Open, receive uh, one another. And then uh, second, remember those who are persecuted. Uh, and, and I think you can extend that beyond that. Just remember those that are struggling, that are hurting, that are in adversity. Whether, whether they're being persecuted for their, or whatever the difficulty might be, be sensitive again. Be tender to those individuals. Remember them. Reach out to them. Come along their side. Give them the encouragement uh, that they need. And then respect marriage. Respect marriage. Um, and what's the best way to respect marriage? Well, for those of you that are married, to stay true to the commitment that you made. And realize a lot of marriage, when you get it, when you just boil it down, a lot of marriage comes down to this, uh, being willing to be unhappy for a while till you can work through the problem. Amen? And, uh, you know, people, I heard somebody just say the other day that uh, had got involved, uh, and a person actually had gotten involved with a, in an extramarital uh, affair made say, well, you know, the, the grass was greener on the other side. And reality is, and you've heard me say this from this pulpit, the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener wherever you water it. And, and what God is saying is invest in your marriage. Maintain that commitment and uh, continue to give, continue to invest, knowing God will use that uh, to draw you into a deeper walk with Him and to teach you deeper depths of His love and His character. And then rest in God. Uh, realize that's where your security is. Uh, find your contentment in Him. And because when we find ourselves in anxiety and worry, it's like for a Christian speaking out of two sides of the mouth, sort of with that forked tongue. You know, it's sort of like, oh, God, yeah, I believe you. I believe your promises. But then at the same time you're saying, but, you know, I don't know that you can really pull it off. That's what we're actually saying, right? When we become worried and filled with anxiety. And God wants us to demonstrate a trust in Him because He's worthy of that trust. And He's demonstrated His integrity and His faithfulness. Father, thank You for uh, the teaching today. Uh, again, uh, very pointed, uh, very direct. Uh, it's almost like the writer here in this 13th chapter, just a lot of little bullet points uh, addressing needs within that particular church family and how to authentically express worship and to show their reverence and awe of you. And so, Lord, uh, give us that same grace here at Edgewood. Lord, as I mentioned earlier in the message, thank you for this church and your grace at work in us. Thank you. You have developed here a very loving, a very caring, a very affectionate church family. But, Lord, we also acknowledge we have not arrived. We need to excel still more. Uh, we know we still have our, at times, sibling rivalries and our contentions and our divisions. And so, Lord, again, take us deeper into your love to know a love that's greater than those differences. Lord, give us a tenderness to those who are hurting, to those who are in adversity or find themselves in persecution. And then, Lord, give us great respect for marriage. Uh, whether we are single or whether we're married, that may we treasure it, may we hold it and regard it as precious and may we not violate the standards that you have established um, for our good, for our happiness, and our ultimate joy. And then, Lord, give us the grace to rest in you, uh, to learn to be content. And through that com contentment, to demonstrate uh, that we're leaning on you. And through that leaning on you, uh, show a lost world that you are worthy of their trust as well. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.